It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 166, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Mike Yolo raises 14 acres of organic olives, cut flowers, and a variety of tree fruits, as well as the occasional vegetable crop at Yolo Press near Davis, California. With his wife, Diane, Yolo Press creates olive oil and a variety of value-added products that are sold with the cut flowers through independent grocers and farmers markets in Davis. Yolo Press has provided a living for Mike and Diane since 1986. We dig into the development of Yolo Press's crop mix and markets and how they develop to accommodate farmer labor and to provide a good living for Mike and Diane. Mike provides all of the production labor on the farm, so we discuss the hows and the whys of making that work, as well as the economics of the farm business and the value-added products. Mike is also the author of the recently published Fruitful Labor, The Ecology, Economy, and Practice of a Family Farm. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, bcsamerica.com. And by High Mowing Organic Seeds, the first independently owned, farm-based seed company, proudly serving professional organic growers with a full line of 100% certified organic and non-GMO project verified vegetable, herb, flower, and cover crop seeds. HighMowingSeeds.com slash farmer to farmer. And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. Mike Madison, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks for inviting me. So glad you could join us today. I would like to start off by having you tell us about Yolo Press, where you guys are located, what you're growing, and and how you're marketing it. Sure. So um, let me set the scene a little bit. Uh, California has a has a big valley down the middle of it, about 430 miles long, 70 miles wide, uh, flat ground, wall to wall intensive agriculture. We're in that valley about a third of the way down from the north end and over toward the west side which puts us right in between Sacramento and San Francisco. My farm is, is 22 acres. I'm, I'm cultivating about 14 acres of that. And of that 14 acres is roughly 60% orchard and uh, the remainder is row crops. The orchard is a variety of things. We have small amount of apricots, figs, uh, plums, persimmons, um, pomegranates, and various kinds of citrus fruit. Most of the orchard, more than 90% of it is olive trees. We have about uh, 1,700 olive trees, pretty good-sized trees. Um, And then the row crop ground is primarily cut flowers. Um, So that's uh, sometimes I'll grow a half acre, an acre of watermelons or cantaloupes, uh, but essentially it's flowers. That seems like kind of an odd mix, flowers and olives. Uh, There's a history to how I ended up getting that way. Um, when you're running a small farm, you're basically being compensated for your labor. And and I need to spread my labor out through the year so I could work as many hours as possible. If I had take, if I had planted the whole thing, say, to apricots, with, which is a, you know, a very nice crop, it comes in in a very short period of time, maybe two weeks in June, um, I'd have two weeks of total pandemonium. I'd have to hire 50 people to get the crop picked. And then I'd have, have 50 weeks with nothing to do. So by going to flowers, which for us has a very long season, I'm able to spread my labor out through the year. So we start in, in mid-January. The flowers start coming in. We're harvesting anemones, 
we're harvesting Prunus mume. Um, and then by mid-February, we're harvesting tulips. And then they just go through the sequence of crops, uh, continuing all through the year. Um, up until about mid-October, it starts to taper off. We may still have a few flowers as late as, as Thanksgiving. Olive harvest starts in mid-October, runs for a couple of months. I try to finish up before Christmas. And as soon as olive harvest is done, I have all these trees to prune, which is eight to 10 weeks of pruning. So that overlaps with the early phases of the, of the flower harvesting season. The upshot of that is that um, I have something to do all the time. Um, and I have income coming every week of the year. You know, if you, if you just have like a very brief season and you get a big lump of money and then you watch it melt away month after month, that can be a little disconcerting. So, so we always have income. We always have things to do. Um, our, our sales are about 15% to two independent supermarkets and about 85% to our local small town farmer's market, which is seven miles from the farm. The market is twice a week, Wednesday nights and Saturday mornings. Uh, 52 weeks a year. It never shuts down. Um, this isn't Minnesota. We're in, in October. You can pack up the Buick and go down to Florida for a couple months. We, we pretty much farm every single day of the year, which has its advantages and disadvantages. That the, the advantage is it's very productive agriculture. The disadvantage is we, we never get a day off. Yeah, so that's more or less the nature of I didn't start out with that as a plan. I started out to be a, a flower grower. And, and part of the reason I went in that direction was that our intent was to sell in our local local farmer's market. And there were already a bunch of very competent vegetable growers in that market. They had beautiful stuff. They knew exactly what they were doing. That was going to be a very competitive uh, scene. And the same was true for fruits and nuts. There are pistachio growers and walnut growers and all the citrus people and apricot people and people growing apples. And all, those, all those people were on top of it. But flowers were more or less an empty niche was mostly a little side hustle for vegetable growers, and typically they were doing a poor job with it. In my case, my father was a flower grower. I had uh, studied floriculture. I had worked in a botanical garden. I had a pretty good idea of what I was doing, and I thought I can come in here and, and dominate that niche right out of the gate, and that, that's more or less what happened. So um, that was the flower scene, but we still had that empty couple of months in uh, October, November, December, to January when there wasn't much going on with the flowers. And so the olives fit into that uh, very nicely. So you started farming. I mean, this isn't, this isn't a recent undertaking for you. No, we started in 1986 at this location. So we're into it for 32 years now. And when you talk about planting the olives with the intention of the, the olive harvest fitting in with your flower harvest season, was that something where you, where you, were very intentional about that, or did you just happen to, to stumble on, oh, look, the olives that we planted happened to be harvested in October, November, and December? It, it was a combination of things. I actually initially planted olive trees for purely aesthetic reasons. I mean, there's a, there's a road in my, in my neighborhood where there's these old olive trees. They make kind of a gothic arch over the road. It's such a beautiful thing. So I thought, I'm going to plant olive trees along my driveway. And then somehow that, so that kind of got me going in that direction um, initially before I actually had a coherent business plan about it. Um, but also when I was looking at, at crops that I could grow, I made a list of every possible thing I could grow. And uh, I looked at a bunch of issues. Uh, 
I wanted crops that did not require bees for pollination. Bees are expensive to rent, and they have they have various problems with them. Uh, I wanted crops that were drought tolerant because my water supply is very expensive, and there are years when water may not be available. And so I went down this list of stuff. I actually found the most profitable thing I could grow was Christmas trees, and I, I wouldn't do it. I thought that's like an insult to this soil, and I. My topsoil is 300 feet thick. I'm not going to spend it growing Christmas trees. <laughs> but but uh, olives, olives fit in very nicely. It's wind-pollinated. Um, it's very drought-tolerant. I could skip irrigation altogether. The trees might sulk a little bit, but it really wouldn't make a big difference. And then they're very forgiving in the harvest. So if you're harvesting something like apricots or peaches, they're coming on fast. You've got like a very narrow harvest window, maybe just 24 hours to get a piece of fruit off the tree. Before that, it's too early, and after that, it's too late. With olives, you have six months. So we start harvesting in October. Some people start even in September, and we could still be harvesting in March if we were still inclined. So that's a, that's a very permissive aspect of that crop. How does one harvest an olive tree? Well, the way I harvest, I, I don't use ladders. So initially, we, we were using ladders, and I find the ladders are dangerous and they're inefficient. Uh, so I said, okay, I'm going to organize things here to do no ladders. We spread nets on the ground, and I basically just use big panels of 60% shade cloth. Um, and then early in the season when the fruit's green, it doesn't want to come off the tree. It's hanging on tight. Um, I'm essentially pulling it off with my hands onto the nets uh, and then moving it into small um, ventilated boxes. Um, later in the season, as the fruit's starting to get ripe, it uh, it comes off the tree more easily. The fruit's turned black now. It's forming an abscission layer at the base of the fruit. At that point, I harvest the trees by spanking them with a stick. I, uh, I have long fiberglass poles, which are the handles of long-handled pruning saws, and I simply spread my nets on the ground, go around the tree first with a 6-foot pole, then with a 12-foot pole, whack, 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 and the fruit comes down, and that, that goes pretty fast. By the end of the season, I'm harvesting maybe 1,500 pounds a day working by myself. I mean, 1,500 pounds of some crops is a lot of a crop, and 1,500 pounds of a other crops is not a lot of a crop. Is fifteen hundred pounds a lot of olives? <laughs> it, it depends on the whole scale of your operation. Um, all of our olives are, are processed for olive oil, and we do that ourselves. And the deal with processing olives for oil is that they're they're pretty fragile. They need to be processed right away because as soon as you harvest the fruit, it gets it gets a little banged up, and it starts to it starts to oxidize. Things start to happen. You're going to start start to lose quality of oil. So essentially, I harvest olives during the day, and then after dinner, I run them through the mill to get the olive oil out, uh, same day. And then the waste material, which gets pumped into a big tank, is just spread back into the orchard. Um, and so through that through that harvesting season, October, November, December, I'm essentially accumulating uh, olive oil day by day. And how much olive oil do you get out of 1,500 pounds of olives? It's variable. It depends on the on the variety of olives, it depends on how mature they are, and it depends quite a bit on the weather because if there's been a lot of rain and the, and the, and the fruit soaked, sucked up a bunch of water, that's going to decrease the proportion of oil. Um, if the weather's been dry and the fruit's even a little bit shrivelly, then they'll have a very high content of oil. But typically, we aim for somewhere around 35 gallons per ton. How much of your business comes from the olive oil side of things, and how much of it comes from the cut flower side of things? Let me let me add a little corollary to the to the whole olive oil story. So 
you know, unlike wine, which improves with age, uh, olive oil only is going to go downhill. It's at its best when it's fresh. Um, it may still be good if it's stored correctly. It may still be good in two or three years, but it's steadily losing character and losing intensity. So we always sell our oil in the current year of production, which means when we get to the end of the season and the, the new crop is starting to come in, we still have oil left over. Uh, we have a few options with that oil. We could sell it wholesale at a fairly low price to somebody who's going to rebottle it under a different label. Um, we don't do that. Actually, what we do is we give half of it to the food bank, and the other half, uh, my wife, Diane, makes into skincare products. So she makes soap, uh, she makes hand salve, and she makes lip balm. The hand salve and the lip balm are a combination of olive oil and beeswax and a couple other things. As it turns out, the skincare products are the most profitable component of the olive oil business, even though we, we can use our sort of lower-grade oil for doing that. So to, to, to answer your question, the combination of of olive oil plus uh, the skincare products are made out of olive oil is roughly half of our income. Um, flowers are roughly, say, 40%, maybe 35%, and the remainder is the other fruit that we grow, um, all of which is processed into jam, or almost all. We sell a little bit of fresh fruit. Fresh fruit's a tough business for a variety of reasons, so pretty much all of the fruit Apricots go into apricot jam, blackberries become blackberry jam, citrus fruits become marmalade, and it's sold as a value-added product. And when you say that the the value-added products that you're doing with the olive oil, I mean, olive oil, I, I guess in and of itself, you could, you could call that a value-added product. But when you're talking about these skincare products as being the most profitable thing that you do with the olives, does that include the amount of time that you've got put into them? Well, um, yeah, it, even with the amount of time. It, 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 I think it works out. When you take a little tub of a hand salve that's made out of, out of olive oil and beeswax and it retails for something like $4, um, there's very little product inside of it, and there's not all that much time. Because you make up a fairly good-sized batch, you're going to knock out 100 tubs in a, in a part of a day. Um, yeah, it is, it is probably still the most profitable part. With the, with the jam, it's quite variable. Like blackberries, I mean, you can... You can make a batch of blackberry jam in 20 minutes and it's ready to go in the jar. With the citrus marmalade, it's a three-day process. It's a very complicated thing where it has to be soaked and then drained and different parts moved this way and that and recombined and so forth. So that's a more, that's a more labor-intensive one. I mean, on the subject of profitability, how much money are you guys making? Are you and your wife making a living on the farm? So yeah, we have. And it's been our sole source of income for all these years. And uh you know, that's an important question. How much money do you make? When I was first starting, I was that was a question I really needed to know the answer to. I'd go to the farmer's market, and I'd say, here's a farm. The guy's got a brand-new $40,000 pickup truck. And, well, farming might be good. You know, it looks like somebody's doing really well. But maybe he has family money behind him, or he has a spouse with a good job, or he's neck-deep in debt. And then you go to the next farmer, and he's got a 50-year-old truck with a green door and a pink fender, and everything looks thrashed. And you think, well, you know, this farming doesn't go. But maybe he's just eccentric. He just likes his old truck, and he actually has $200,000 in the bank. And there's no way to know, if, other short of just going asking people, and how much money do you make? And and that's a rude question. And most people, so it's difficult to ask, and, and most people won't give you an answer anyway. Um, and yet it's really important. And I don't mind sharing my... My numbers with you. Um, so our gross revenue hovers right around $100,000. That's that's from our farmers market and from our 
uh, supermarkets we sell to. Um, but then when you go to fill out your Schedule F, which is the part of, of tax of your income tax, which is called profit and loss from farming, you have to tote up all your expenses. And typically our expenses look like something like $70,000, which means that our net income is around $30,000. That's for, for two adults working 360 days a year. So it's pretty pathetic. It's like $5 an hour. But Schedule F is misleading, and it's much more discouraging than reality. And, and let me mention a couple of the ways that works. Um, there's a line item for uh, use of your automobile and, and business expense. Um, they let you charge $0.54 cents a mile. Well, you know, I buy my vehicles used. I hunt around for a good bargain. I take care of them myself. I'm driving on flat ground with no hills, so there's not a lot of oh, I gas mileage is good. And my true cost of operating your vehicle is maybe $0.20 cents a mile. So on my income down, my Schedule F, following the instructions, I'm going to see how my vehicle expense was $6,000 last year. When in reality, it was $2,500. Um, depreciation is another one. You say, okay, your buildings are losing value, your equipment's losing value, and you get to write that off year by year over a period of time. In fact, a well-built, well-maintained building is actually increasing in value. And same with some of your equipment, it's, it may actually be holding its value pretty well, especially like certain highly desirable cultivating tractors and other specialty kinds of things. It may still be worth what you paid for them. So the depreciation thing is also somewhat fictional. Um, and it's also not money that came out of your, your pocket in the current year. I mean, it's a reflection of something that happened years ago. And the main thing, though, is that a lot of the labor on the farm increases the value of the farm. It increases your wealth, but it never shows up as income. If I decide I'm going to add an acre of trees and I make cuttings of olive trees, they're on their own roots, they're not grafted, so I can grow them cuttings. I make cuttings, I grow them in the nursery for a year or two, go out there, I survey, I plant them, I dig trenches and lay pipe, uh, I stake the trees, I print them, I go all this stuff. Um, there's no income associated with that, but it has increased the value of the farm. If I were going to turn around and sell the farm, I'd say, well, now it's got an acre of established orchard that adds five or $6,000 to the value of the farm. Now, I uh, made a sort of a crude calculation about that, but I, I think that something like $9,000 a year of income is, uh, is in the form of labor that I've done to increase the value of my farm, which doesn't show up as, as income. It just shows up as an increase in wealth. So it's not that bad. I mean, the, the schedule F says that I'm making $30,000 a year. The, the reality is probably closer to 50. And you know, I think it's important to, to look at these things from both a uh, global and historical perspective. I mean, we live really well. We have a comfortable house. We have potable water. We have good food. We have medical care if we need it. We have uh, schools for our children. We have relatively stable society, and we have a currency that we can use, and all these, all these other advantages. I would say that we probably have more comfortable lives and better wine to drink than the king of France had in the 17th century. So even if the numbers look, look pitiful by some standards, they're actually pretty good. You talk about increasing the value of your farm, and, and yet, I mean, you're, you know, you're 70 years old. You're either looking now or going to be looking soon at how to hand off your farm to somebody who's probably younger than you are. That's correct. Yeah. So, yes, I'm 70. I actually... I'm still in good health, and I don't feel any different than I felt when I was 35. Um, but I have to recognize that, you know, a demise, a sudden demise is always a possibility. Yes, well, we have two daughters. They love to farm as their lifelong home, but they're not interested in farming. 
So you're right. I need to I need to find some way to shift the farming operation over to younger people. And we've we've already started doing that. I think we're in our sixth year now of leasing out a few rows of olive trees to a young couple who uh, want to be in the olive oil business. So the, the terms of the lease are that I do the irrigation and everything else is, is in their lap. They harvest the fruit, they make the oil, they prune the trees, they take care of all that stuff. And they making olive oil is, is not an easy deal. It's, it's a complex uh, business. I I have my own little processing plant here. I have a collection of machinery that I that I purchased in Italy and shipped over here. Um, there are many variables in that thing. It's got 13 variable speed electric motors. It's got all this stuff happening. And, and to learn how to use it takes a long time. So you eventually you learn that when this thing is happening, you have to do these three other things to try to fix it. Or if you hear that sound, um, particular sound, you've got about 30 seconds to turn off a pump before you have a big mess on your hands. Um, so they've mastered that. They've learned how to make the oil. And the idea is that they will gradually ramp up in terms of taking over the olive oil side of the business. They, uh, they've established their own brand. They have their own markets, which are in Oakland, Portland, and Seattle, so they're not in competition with me. Um, and at the moment, they have small children, but as you know, as their kids get older and so on, it's quite possible they can shift into a greater role with the, with the olive side of the business. And then on the, on the open ground, uh, just starting on January 1st, I leased out two acres to uh, a young woman who's a competent farmer who grows Asian vegetables on contract for a uh, Korean restaurant in San Francisco. This is actually a great business model for a small farmer because she's an employee of the restaurant, so she gets a paycheck and she gets health care. And she grows all these vegetables, whatever it is that the restaurant thinks they need. But in terms of carrying risk, it's the restaurant that carries all the risk. So she's moved out here. Um, and I'll share the terms of our lease. It's a, it's a 10-year asymmetric lease. The asymmetry is that I'm obligated to let her stay 10 years, but if she wants to leave, you know, if something comes up and it's not working out, she can leave without penalty at any time. That's the asymmetry. The lease amount for two acres is $1,500 a year. Now, for that, she gets the use of the land. She gets her irrigation water, which is probably worth six or $700, and she gets the use of all my equipment. So if she wants to use tractors, implements, tools, workshop, any of that kind of stuff, it's available to her. And that's great for a starting farmer because she doesn't have to put up all that capital to go out and purchase a tractor and a bunch of implements to go with it. Um, she, she had to put up a hoop house. That uh, was her, basically her only capital expense. So that's a good relationship, and, and it has the potential that she can uh, gradually expand. Now, whether she wants to deal with the flower business or not is still up in the air. I have a lot of perennial crops. I have an acre of peonies out here. I've got a bunch of you know other kinds of things that... that uh, would, would be ashamed to plow them down in order to plant cabbages, but um, that, that's still unresolved. You talked when we were talking about profitability on the farm about the value that you were adding through your labor year over year over year. Is that value that you expect that you're going to get back out of the farm in the transition models that you're talking about? No. So, you know, we... We don't intend to ever, that would show up as a capital gain if I sold the farm. Well, I'm not going to sell the farm. Um, so, you know, we intend to hold it as a, as a long-term family asset. And who knows, maybe my grandkids will want to farm it. Um, so, no, without selling the farm, I'm not, the only way I would 
sort of reap the increased value of the farm is because I would be able to charge a higher rent for the lease. But my sympathies are actually with these young farmers who are starting out, and I set my leasehold terms pretty low. And there's a, you know, there's an issue that comes up here is that you, you might wonder, why did the vegetable, young vegetable grower choose to lease land rather than purchase it? In this area, farmland's very expensive. A big, if you're buying a big parcel, you could get it for $30,000 an acre. So that means 100 acres is $3 million. A small parcel, the per acre price is going to be higher so that, for example, right now there's a, there's a 20-acre piece down the road from me. It's listed at $1.1 million. Well, no farmer is going to buy that. I mean, the, the farmland has just been, the price of it has been totally put out of reach of beginning farmers. And there's a reason for that. It's partly because the United States farmland is seen as a global investment opportunity. There's, there's Chinese money, there's Saudi Arabian money, there's German money looking to buy up farmland in the United States. So far, it's been mostly in you know, California, Oregon, Illinois, and Iowa, but it, it's, it's spreading throughout the country. And that, that has two, two results. It, it drives up the price of farmland, which puts it out of reach for a lot of people. Um, but also makes a lot of land available for lease. And my my advice to the young farmers who, I, who I'm coaching in my area is don't think about buying a farm because the farm that you can afford to buy is 40 miles down a dirt road up in the hills. It's class three stony ground. And you're too far away from your markets. You're going gonna to be a truck driver half time and a farmer half time. And yes, soils can be improved. They're resilient. You can do great things with class three soil over a period of decades, but it's a heartbreaking way to farm. You're much better off to seek out a long-term lease of really good land close to your markets. Those two things, good land, close to your markets, and then long-term lease. Her lease is 10 years, but a lot of land in my neighborhood has 30-year leases. And that's typically because the tenant wants to plant an orchard. So if you're going to put a put big expense into planting pistachios or walnuts or something like that, you want to be certain that you're going to be able to reap the benefits of that of that uh, investment. And so a 30-year lease typically will be written into the deed so that if the property is sold, the lease remains intact. And that's, that's my advice to the young farmers in this area anyway, is that try to find a long-term lease, asymmetric lease that gives you an escape clause uh, for really good soil, class one soil, close to your markets. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, just, it's, it's actually not so much an economic problem, it's a psychological problem, because people think, I really want to own my own farm. That's, like, that's, a, that's a deep, fundamental instinct, and I, I certainly felt that way. Um, and yet, it, it doesn't make economic sense, and you have to sort of re- revise your, your thinking and say, well, if I have the use of this piece of land for 20 years or 30 years, it's my farm. I don't, I don't, my name's not written down in a big book in the recorder's office. Um, it doesn't really matter. And of course, when you bought your land in 1986, that whole land price situation was completely different than it is now. It was. It was. Um, yeah, I, I paid four thousand dollars an acre, which seemed like a high price and a and a bit of a stretch for us. Um, and yet now, if I were the market value of my farm is, if I were to sell it, would be well over one point five million dollars, which just seems crazy. I mean, no, no farmer is going to buy it. You know, who would buy it would be a wealthy couple, both professionals who want to build a mansion in the country and keep a horse. And then they're still going to, that's not going to take up the whole property. Then they're going to have land available to lease. Again, it comes down to the situation that ownership of land is go 
going toward a class of people who are not farmers. And so farmers have, have the option of being able to step into those situations and secure leases. So you live really close to your market. Do you take advantage of that by having the public out to your farm? Or is that primarily an advantage for you because of quality of life issues and, and the fact that you're not having to be a truck driver? Yeah, it's it's um we do have have people come out to the farm from time to time although we discourage it because people love to waste your time. I mean there are people who come out and they want to talk for 5 hours and be shown everything and and we're pretty busy. So we we mostly uh avoid that, but yeah, it is primarily our closest to our markets. Neither of us likes to be stuck in traffic. And it's an interesting economic side to that because prices in our market are low. We're in the middle of dense agricultural area, it's fairly competitive with the result that prices tend to be low. So we'll sell, you know, premium, ripe, organic apricots, just beautiful piece of fruit. That's $2 a pound at retail at our market. We sell a, a premium bouquet of flowers, really gorgeous big bouquet for $7. And if I took that same bouquet to San Francisco, I could sell it for 20 or 25 So just by driving 60 miles, I could triple the price. The problem is I don't want to drive to San Francisco. I mean, traffic on Interstate 80 is, is horrible, and and I'm a very impatient guy, and I don't want to be stuck just because I've got a pocket full of money. is not enough motivation for me to be stuck in traffic on Interstate 80. So, no, we're happy to take a little back road into town, sell in our local market, recognizing that quality of life is better, but there's less income because of that. You talked about getting into the flower business because nobody else was in the flower business. Was the same thing true? For getting into the olive oil business? You know, it pretty much was. The olive oil business has, has developed. So we started doing olive oil, uh, planting olive trees in the, in the 1991. And um, so this whole artisanal olive oil thing had not yet taken off. And one of the reasons I had to go to Italy and purchase my own uh, milling equipment was because there were no mills around here. I was taking it to a mill that was 150 miles away and uh, Scheduling was difficult, and there were many there were many troublesome aspects of that. In the meantime, olive oil has become a sort of a fad, and the sort of wealthy tax write-off people who years past would have had a winery now are doing olive oil. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of players uh, increasingly in that business. Um, the market is pretty saturated within California, although as soon as you leave the state, state lines, that market's wide open. We have kind of defined our own niche. We're well known to our customers. We have very loyal customers, and we have you know no difficulty selling our oil. We also have shifted how we're doing. We're typically on the on the scale of artisanal prices. We're kind of at the bottom end of the scale. We're typically low priced farmers, and and that's a whole conversation in itself. But um, we've also shifted away from like small bottles into selling. We sell the bulk of our oil in three-liter jugs, just short of a gallon. Um, one thing, it saves us a lot of time and, and expense on packaging, but it's also a, a different perception of the food. If people have a little tiny bottle that was expensive, they tend to hoard it. Whereas if they have a great big jug that was relatively inexpensive, they feel rich in olive oil, they use it freely, and it's a healthy food, and they should be using it freely. So, so. We're kind of stimulating demand simply by selling it on that bigger scale. But yeah, there's there's new comp competition coming on board all the time. 
I like what you said about selling it in large bottles and making people feel like they've got an abundance of it. It's sort of like the pile it higher and deeper philosophy of selling produce at farmer's market. You know, when you have a lot out there, it loses its preciousness and people buy more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, the absolutely hardest thing to sell is the last bunch of flowers, you know, um, because nobody wants to, what's wrong with this one? It's the only one that's left. And I just trade it for a tamale or something. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you're right. It's, the more you have, the better it sells. But also, in, in terms of the farmer's market setting, I should say that the more different things you have, the better you will do. Um, because if you're going to go stand, say you've got a five-hour market. It goes from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. You actually had to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and load your van and drive to the market and set up your stall. The market goes, the market ends. You've got to go pay your fees. You have to reload your van, drive home, unload the van, put stuff back in the cooler that didn't sell. A five-hour market actually takes 11 or 12 hours. And if you're going to stand there for 11 or 12 hours, you want to make as much money as you can. So like a typical market this time of year, my wife goes to the market and maybe she will sell $800 worth of tulips and uh, $600 worth of olive oil and $300 worth of jam and uh, $200 worth of skincare products and $100 worth of fresh kumquats, which we're harvesting right now. Um, she could have gone, if we were just doing flowers, we could have gone to the market and sold $800 worth of flowers. $800 is, is nothing to spit at. It's good money, but it's not as good as, as $2,100 or whatever the, the total thing was. So the more different things you have and the greater the, the depth of your display, as long as you're putting in all that time, you might as well sell as much as you can. In California, is direct marketed olive oil? Well, I'm sure it is now because, like you said, there's this whole artisanal thing going on around olive oil here in 2018 that wasn't the case back in the 1990s. But was it something that that was difficult to sell at a farmer's market when you first put it out on display? Because I can imagine, like, well, for me, I, and I'm a Midwesterner now, I buy olive oil in the grocery store. That's where you get it. You don't get olive oil at a farmer's market. Did you run into that when you guys started selling the olive oil? A little bit. I mean, there had already been such a uh, you know, strong promotion of the Mediterranean diet as a heart-healthy diet, and olive oil was one of the one of the bases of that. Um, so there was there was a receptive public there, but basically we had to educate people about what's good olive oil and what's not good olive oil. You know, you go to the you go to your supermarket and you buy a a bottle of, you know, Star or Carapelli or one of those those things. It's mostly rancid, refined olive oil. It was you know, five-year-old oil that somebody bought up cheap in Tunisia, and they steamed, distilled it, and extracted it with solvents and bottled it up and sent it to the United States. There's a lot of really crummy olive oil out there in the stores. And so good olive oil, fresh olive oil, it should be flavorful. It should have certain kinds of uh, flavor profiles to it and so on. So we did lots of tasting, lots of education, and we still do. Lots of education. That's an important part. I mean, we've we've educated a large part of our regular clientele, but we're still all the time spreading the word, talking about it. What's good oil? What's not? What's bad oil? Olive oil is light sensitive. Don't buy it in a clear bottle. It should be in either in a can or in dark glass. And I don't know. Early on, so I joined various groups of olive oil producers, and and uh, one of them once made the comment that we hope someday to be competitors, but for the time being, we're colleagues, and our joint job is to educate the public. And that's kind of where we were and where we still are to some degree. Now, you said that there was a lot to talk about with regards to your pricing philosophy. Talk to me about your pricing philosophy. Well, we tend to be at the, bot at the bottom end of pricing. And 
And especially with things like olive oil, there are a lot of vendors, a lot of artisanal producers who will say, okay, I'm going to enter my product in all these different competitions and win a bunch of gold medals. And winning a gold medal is about as easy as getting a trophy in AYSO soccer. There's not much to it. And then I'm going to advertise on social media. I'm going to hype my product really hard. I'm going to get a really premium price for it. That whole that whole scene just kind of wearies me. I don't really want to take part in it. Um, but also, if you have a high price, you're, you're essentially cutting out people who aren't wealthy from your customer base. And we're very much concerned about, and we, they're, they're poor people in our community, and I think they ought to be able to have olive oil just as much as anybody else. What I'd love to be able to do is to give it to the poorer people and charge a medium price to the medium people and charge a high price to the rich people. But of course, there's no, there's no way you can do that. Um, but typically, we're, we're setting our prices on the low end of the spectrum because we're concerned about you know, who, our, who our customer base is and because we're not particularly ambitious to be wealthy. I mean, there, there's a concept that just kind of disappeared from our society, which is the concept of enough. Like how much is enough stuff? How much is enough money? Well, our, our concept of enough is pretty low. I, mean, I don't need to drive a Tesla. My my 20-year-old Honda serves me very well. And so I'm actually not all that interested in the money side of the thing. That's not the primary business that I'm involved in farming. The other thing is that because we're old, our, our concept of the value of money was fixed somewhere back about 1960, and we're clearly out of date. When I look at young people, they think a $5 bill is a throwaway item. And to me, a $5 bill still has some value. So we're just out of touch with the times. We haven't sort of, our, our concept of value of money hasn't kept up with inflation. Now, when you talk about the production that you're doing, this combination of perennial fruit trees, obviously perennial olive trees, and then the annual flowers and occasional right. annual vegetables, that actually strikes me as being something that, well, a lot of people are talking about now with, with this idea of, of a permaculture setup on your farm. Is that right. is that a philosophy that you're following? Is that Does that resonate with what you're doing in your operation? Um, yes and no. So, you know, often often if you if you look at the permacultural literature, they will have like uh, trees with the understory of herbaceous plants, uh, either perennial or annual, that kind of thing. And we started out, we, we set up the farm with alley cropping. That was my original intention. So I would have like a row of trees every 40 or 50 feet, and I'd be growing annual crops in between. And that was a failure. And uh, the reason it was a failure was because, primarily because of sparrows, but other other birds and rodents that are herbivores that that are sort of sort of uh, timid animals. They want to stay close to dense cover, so they can flee very quickly if a hawk comes overhead or if a coyote comes around the corner. So by had doing alley cropping. Everything I was growing was essentially a field edge because there was always a tree 25 feet away. And the result was I had this intense predation on any kind of ceiling I was trying to get out of the ground. So eventually we recognized it that as a failure, we ripped out a whole lot of stuff. We reconfigured the ground so that I basically have an orchard area and I have an open ground area. So I'm, I can protect some of the stuff in the middle of the open ground from that kind of predation. That said, yeah, we are in something of a permaculture kind of situation. I mean, clearly, you know, tilling up the ground is a is this some ways a destructive process, and certainly I, my preference is to leave it undisturbed and develop a strong soil ecosystem. That I'm not running a big piece of steel up the middle of it every 90 days, 
And so, yeah, I, I love the perennial crops from that point of view. And so what kind of management do you have to do with those perennial fruit trees and the perennial olive trees in terms of, well, I guess I think primarily in terms of weed management and managing that, that orchard floor? So the orchard floor takes essentially no management. Um, the olive trees are, are uh, you know, dense. They have, they're evergreen trees. They cast a pretty dense shade. There's not a lot of weed issues uh, underneath. And, and um, years ago, I, I planted a, a no-till clover mix. Um, all those varieties died out except for one, Metacago polymorpha, which is an annual uh, alfalfa. And that's just kind of a permanent established uh, crop in the, in the orchards. So we basically have an alfalfa understory in the spring when there's moisture around. Then as summer comes and things dry out, um, that dies down. And I'll, I'll mow it with the flailmower. Um, but no, we you know the trees... The trees are going to have their roots down 15, 20, 25 feet. Um, they don't really care about the weeds, and I don't really care about the weeds in the orchards. Now, in the uh, in the annual flower crops, weeds are uh, a very different deal. Um, partly because when you till the soil, you're planting weeds. You know, untilled soil will eventually develop some kind of a, a permanent cover to it. Um, when you go in there with a with a disc or a chisel plow or something like that, and you chisel up the ground, then you're you're stimulating the growth of annual weeds. And we have a pretty heavy weed pressure here. There's a lot of seeds in the seed bank of weeds here. So anytime I disturb the ground, I'm going to get weeds coming up. Um, in the summertime, when the ground is dry, um, weed management is fairly straightforward. And I should say this is a Mediterranean climate, so May, June, July, August, September, October, we have no rain not one drop of rain during that six-month period, which has a plus and a minus. The plus is that soil moisture is totally under your control. You can make it moisture dry however you want because you're managing your irrigation. The minus, of course, is that you have expensive and time-consuming irrigation stuff to look after. But in terms of managing weeds, it means if I want to cultivate a bed, I can let it dry out, and then I can go through there with a cultivating tractor rigged up with sweeps and knives and do a pretty good uh, job with initial pass, and I'll come back with a with a stirrup hoe and you know finish cleaning it up. And so that's that's quite straightforward in the summertime. The big problem for us with managing weeds is for stuff that's planted in the fall, with the intention of harvesting it in the spring. A lot of stuff overwinters here because it's a it's a very mild winter. So um, many of my flower crops are fall planted for spring harvest, and so I'm planting tulips and iris and anemones and ranunculus and calendulas and godetia and all kinds of stuff. Sweet peas are planted in the fall for spring harvest. And we get we start going, getting into a rainy season, November, December, the weeds germinate along with the crops and the ground is wet. I can't cultivate it. These are relatively heavy soils. I can't get out there and you can't cultivate mud. And so I do a little hand weeding. I try to stay on top of it, but sometimes, and maybe we'll get a little dry interval in the middle of December, somewhere in there, I can I can sneak out and do some quick cultivating with a tractor. But generally, I'm, I'm forbidden to do that because of the condition of the soil. So I hand weed some stuff, but in reality, a bunch of it gets away from me. And uh, I used to regard this as just, uh, well, it was an unfortunate accident this year. You know, I never got around to uh, weeding the calendulas, and they just got overrun with weeds. And finally, I thought, I'm just going to mow this crop so I don't have to look at it anymore because it's so pathetic. But I realized that since this happens, it's been happening every year for 30 years, that it's not an accident. It's actually a policy. And I could describe the policy as overplanting 
with the expectation of abandoning a whole bunch of stuff because it got away with weeds. And well, you, you could think, okay, why don't you apply some, some thought to that and figure out which things you abandon and stop growing those, or maybe stop growing so much of things. Part of the problem with that is every year is different. In some years, one crop thrives uh, and others don't. And then another year, the lineup's going to be different. So I don't want to abandon a particular crop just because it had two or three bad years, because in the fourth year, it might come in there and, and save the day. One crop I've been thinking about lately is sweet peas. We plant sweet peas in October. They're, they're a lovely crop. They're, they're fragrant, lovely things. Um, but they're fussy. They require trellising. So we used to like pound in posts and set up uh, trellis work for the sweet peas to climb up. And that was a nuisance and an expense. And then at the end of the season, you have this big tangled mess. you got to take it all down again. So a few years ago, we shifted our, our strategy. We plant a row of kamut. Kamut is a kind of wheat from Egypt, it grows about four or five feet tall, has very sturdy stems. And then parallel to that, and about a foot or 16 inches away, I plant a row of sweet peas. The idea is that the sweet peas will use the kamut as their trellis, and they'll grow up that. And uh, at the end of the season, I can just mow the whole thing, and I don't have to mess around with taking down trellising. That actually works pretty well, although for the last, I'd say, five years in a row, we've had a poor crop of sweet peas because it's gotten overrun with weeds, and I just haven't gotten to it. And I'm thinking... Uh, Maybe this is a crop I should stop growing. And yet, you know, and maybe in the sixth year, we get a great crop of sweet peas and make a couple thousand dollars out of it. Oh, well, that's probably worthwhile to have done that in the past. But, you know, it's, it's uh, taken some attitude adjustment on my part to recognize that when I do my fall planting, it's just like uh, making a bunch of trials of which some of them are going to fail. And I, if I knew in advance which ones were going to fail, I wouldn't do it. But I never know that. So I just have to have to plant with the expectation, okay, half this stuff, I'm going to mow it down with a flail mower and be done with it. And the other half will be good. I guess in my experience, that's something as a farmer that was extremely disheartening, having to, having to turn in a crop that I had planted, that I had seed or transplants invested in, the work of preparing the soil. I, I, I'm, I, what you're talking about is sort of giving me a bellyache as you, as you say that that's kind of policy on your farm. Over the years, I keep lowering my expectations lower and lower and lower until almost anything that works out is a bonus. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I've just, it takes some, like I said, it takes some attitude adjustment, but, but uh, that's just the way it goes. And I, and I see the upside of it is the point is that, um, you know, some of it's, some of it's going to succeed. And that, that's the important part. Now, you and Diane run the farm. It's just the two of you, right? Yeah, we have no employees, and and actually, you know, there's a I mean, California's ahead of the nation in a lot of different ways, and one of the ways they're out front with is with heavy-handed regulation. Basically, in California, you cannot have anyone working on your farm who's not a member of your immediate household without providing minimum wage, workers' compensation insurance, unemployment insurance, disability insurance, state taxes withheld, federal taxes withheld, and FICA withheld. Um, that's the law. You can't do it. You can't have volunteers. My brother can't come out and help me pick fruit. And that applies also to interns. You know, when laws are ridiculous, civil disobedience is appropriate. And there have been times when, you know, I've had people come out and give me a hand, or I've actually hired some other young farmers who were, had had an empty spot in their schedule and needed to earn some money. But there's another aspect to hiring people that's worrisome. And that is this, that if somebody gets injured on your farm while they're helping you, okay, they've got their own health insurance. 
They go to their doctor, and the doctor says, gee, how'd you break your ankle? Said, well, I was working on this farm, and they go, oh, you're working on a farm? Well, your insurance doesn't cover that. The farmer's insurance has to cover that. Well, I was just volunteering. It doesn't matter. And so somebody gets injured on your farm. This is true all across the country. It's just this outrageously horrible healthcare system we have, is that, is that even though they have, they're paying their $1,000 a month for their health insurance, if they were injured on your farm, then you're the one who's responsible. And there was a case some years back in the area where somebody had an employee, they were paying them cash under the table. It was a, not a legitimate deal. And the guy more or less faked an injury. He came around and said, ah, I hurt my back. I need $25,000. And so the farmer went to the, his attorney and said, what should I do? And the attorney said, give him $25,000. That's your only choice. And that's kind of cast a chill on the whole uh, underground labor market situation. But it is, you know, this is, this is a worry for, for getting people on the farm. But the other, the other side of that is that I actually like to work alone. I mean, I, I enjoy my solitude, and uh, I sing while I work, and uh, I'm a very focused worker. I don't have a phone. I don't have an iPod. I just I just bear down and work hard. And uh, so, yeah, I don't necessarily want to have other people around the place anyway. With that, we're going to stop here, take a break, get a quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Mike Madison from Yolo Press in Solano County, California. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with a PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, power harrows, rotary plows, snow throwers, log splitters, and more. You name it, you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors and has many of the same features. I have used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time when I was using them thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments plus videos of BCS in action. The podcast is also brought to you by High Mowing Organic Seeds. When your livelihood depends on the quality of your seeds, be confident in your investment. When you grow organically, you need to know that your seeds were selected to perform in organic conditions. High Mowing offers professional quality seeds grown by organic farmers for organic farmers. Visit High Mowing online to request a free copy of their 2018 seed catalog, read about the company's mission, and browse over 700 organic varieties, including tried-and-true market standards, all-new high-performance hybrids, and beloved heirlooms. Use the code F2FSEEDS when you purchase online, or mention the code when you call to receive a 10% discount on purchases of $100 or more. Visit highmowingseeds.com slash farmer to farmer or call 866-735-4454 to get started. All right, and we're back with Mike Madison from Yolo Press. Mike, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the flower production that you're doing. How many acres of flowers do you have? Um, it's well. So at the moment, now that I've I've leased out part of my open ground, I'm running running around four acres. That's a lot of flowers. It's a lot of flowers. I do not do it as as densely as is possible. I've gone to some of this very expensive flower growing uh, ground over on the California coast. Uh, where every square inch, I mean, even the median strip up a road has flowers growing in it. Uh, they're so densely using their land. I'm a little more more widely spaced than that. And for example, I plant all my beds, or whatever I'm growing, are planted two rows, 17 inches apart. 
And the reason I do that is because I have a cultivating tractor that's rigged up to, to cultivate two rows that are 17 inches apart. That's a certain amount of wasted space. I couldn't, and if for a skinny crop like tulips or iris or garlic or any number of things, I could put a third row up the middle. Um, but I don't do that just because my cultivation is set up to do you know, 17 inch rows. So, so yeah, there's a certain amount of wasted space, less intense production than it could have been. Well, and I suppose that with labor being a pretty limiting factor for you on your farm, that makes sense because, you know, what you're talking about is not trying to maximize your income in terms of dollars per square foot or really not even being focused on squeezing as much money out of things as you can. Making it easy would seem like it's more important than maximizing production. That's, that's true. But there's another side of that is that, you know what, this is an interesting thing to me is that farming is not unskilled labor. It is skilled labor. And even something like picking fruit or setting out transplants is skilled labor. And part of that skill set is being fast. Early on, we had volunteers come help us pick olives. I thought, well, the fast people will be a little bit faster than the slow people. Actually, the fast people are like 20 times faster than the slow people. And there's the whole range in between. Something about focus, about hand-eye coordination, all those kind of things um, have to do with the skill of being a, a fast worker. And I am like at 99th percentile fast worker. I'm really speedy. I, I used up a lot of oxygen and I just bear down, pedal to the metal and stay with it. And I'm not necessarily thorough and I'm not necessarily accurate, uh, <laughs> but I'm fast. And that's, that's, <laughs> that's the value to us. So, yeah, so that's part of the, part of the production side of the things is, is being fast. And it's also true. You, you see some people come out, they're going to come out and work and, they work a little bit, and they take out their phone, and they look at it, and then they work a little more, and then they fiddle with the adjustments on their iPod, and then they take out their phone. Like, well, that's a, that's a failed human being as far as farming is concerned. You just got to get them off the farm. It's really, it does take a certain amount of focus just to get down and get stuff done. For the flower farming, do you have refrigeration on the farm? Yeah, we have a walk-in cooler. Ideally, I would have run it at about 34 degrees as a compromise between saving electricity uh, and that cost, we typically run it around 38 to 40 degrees. But yes, we get we try to sell everything for the day of harvest or the next day. So we're not holding anything long term. I know if you go to big commercial floral operation, they start accumulating roses for Valentine's Day. They start accumulating that stuff in December and they put it in cold storage. And that's why often, you know, holiday flowers that came from the supermarket don't last very well because they've already been in storage for quite a long time. We tend, tend to move stuff out you know, very quickly. Part of being able to make that work is being able to you know, drop stuff off at one of our wholesale uh, situations. And we have a lot of tulips coming. We just finished up tulip harvesting season. So tulips start in mid-February. We finish them up toward the end of March. Well, tulips can come in pretty fast. We have various places we can take them in addition to our farmer's market so we can hold them in the cooler. So that stuff's always pretty fresh. Uh, tulips, I might say one other thing about tulips. We, uh, I always used to plant my tulips, and I typically plant between ten and 20,000 tulip bulbs every fall. We treat them as annuals. It's not cold enough here to establish tulips as a perennial crop, and our soil is so full of western pocket gophers that they will have eaten two-thirds of the tulips by the end of the year anyway, eating the bulbs. So we treat them as annuals. I always used to plant them on my hands and knees, get out there, and December, which is when we, so we get, we get them, it's not cold enough here, so we have the tulip bulbs put in cold storage, so we don't get them until December. By the time we get them in December, they've already experienced winter in cold storage in a big facility up in Oregon. 
I used to plant them on, on, on my hands and knees one at a time. Um, this last year, I bought a potato planting machine made by a, a little outfit in Wyoming, U.S. small farm equipment. Uh, lovely machine. They rigged it up for me, uh, some different sprockets to make the, the spacing more appropriate for tulips than it is for potatoes. And I was able to plant you know, 10,000 tulips in 90 minutes. That was, that was a, talking about making life, life easy and fast. That was a, something I should have done 30 years ago. I farmed in the desert for a couple of years. I remember what pocket gophers could do to a crop and just how quickly. And you're talking about having a large population of those. That must be hard on just about everything that you're growing. It, it is. You know, they'll, they'll even take out, I think the, the, the discouraging thing about pocket gophers is that they're not, they're essentially committing vandalism. They like to eat the junction of the stem with the root, that, that particular part of the plant. And so they'll take out a five-year-old tree. They'll go in there, they'll chew it right at that spot. They'll knock over a great big plant. They'll chew a sunflower right at the base. If they were going to eat the whole thing, I'd say, okay, fair is fair, live and let live, let them eat it. But they don't. They go down the row, they kill each plant by taking a little bite or two right at the base of the stem, and then they go on to the next plant. So that's, that's discouraging. I used to trap a lot of gophers, put a lot of effort into that. It's like taking water out of the ocean with a teacup. It just fills right back in again, and I finally gave up. I decided my best management tool for pocket gophers is building nesting boxes for barn owls. A nesting pair of barn owls will eat about 3,000 rodents a year, and so we put up a lot of owl boxes, and that that's helpful. Um, it's not, it doesn't completely solve the problem, but it's a help. That seems to me to be a kind of a focus on your farm, what I might call that agroecological approach to managing things. From what I read in your book, it, it seems like you apply that same sort of thing to, I mean, you, you talked about the weed control challenges. Well, or the, I should just say the, the weed control in your flower crop. But I think you're also doing some of that in terms of weed management in your flower crop, not just relying on cultivation, but trying to set things up biologically so that you are planning for the future. If I had more ground, I would follow like a medieval uh, practice of fallowing. Where I mean, one one way to to clean up the weed population is to fallow a piece of ground for several years, maybe with cover crops on it. And I I, I don't have enough enough space to be able to have that luxury. Uh, we do grow cover crops, so we have a winter rainy season. So we're cover crops are all winter overwintering cover crops. Uh, we grow that on any any piece of ground, any square foot that doesn't have a crop on it in the winter time is going to have have a cover crop. We used to be pretty heavily in. Uh, planting in the direction of legumes, beans and vetch, and uh, winter peas. Um, actually, we have sufficient nitrogen in our soil, but we're a little short of organic matter. So I've shifted over now to growing primarily oats and triticale as my winter cover crop as a soil building process. Are you rotating your flowers with those cover crops then, or is it really more of getting in and, and catching any open pieces? Or is, it, is, there, is there intentionality behind how you've designed the cover crop rotation Combined with the flower rotation. Yeah, good question. No, there's a well, there's intentionality in the sense that yeah, I want to I want to I mean bare ground is like a kind of violation of the natural world, and so I don't like to see bare ground on my farm, and I, I hope to have something growing on pretty much every square foot all the time. Even though in the summertime things do become pretty dormant, the earthworms retreat down 18 inches deep and curl up in a little ball, and they wait for for the fall rains. In terms of the rotations, uh, I try to rotate the crops around from space to space, but it's, you know, I, I know people who have like Excel spreadsheets 
all their crop rotation mapped out five, six, seven years ahead and behind. And that's, that's splendid. I, I admire that. I'm not put together that way. I kind of I'm really rely on my memory, which is slightly dodgy. And yeah, I think I had this here last year. I'm going to move it over there this year. And, and, uh, so I do move things around and there is a rotation, but it's not scientifically, uh, regulated. Now, Diana is an equal partner in the farming operation with you. Absolutely. So the way the way it shakes out is that I do the I do the farming part of the thing, the crop production side of it, and pretty much all the harvesting. And she does value added things. Uh, she makes all the jam. She uh, makes the skincare products, and she does uh, most of the sales, uh, which is great. She has you know the social person, great charming personality. I'm not social. I don't have a trying personality. So it's great. She can do the sales, make a good team, and I can, I can be out here, uh, you know, mucking around producing the crops. So do you guys do farmers market together, or if I do the Wednesday night market, um, which is a fairly mediocre side of market in the sense that we don't sell a whole lot of stuff. Uh, people don't buy flowers in the middle of the week. They buy flowers on the weekend because that's when they do their entertaining and marrying and that kind of thing. Um, and it's a much, it's a much. It, the Wednesday night market has a different feel to it. There's like a, usually a band and a beer garden and food vendors. And so it's more of a party with a, with a farmer's market on the side, whereas the Saturday market's a serious market. It's a much bigger market, has many more vendors. Um, so she does the Saturday market. I do the Wednesday market. And then she takes care of all the other sales delivery to the supermarkets and that kind of thing. Does she do all of the value-added stuff? Well, well I, I run the olive oil mill to make the olive oil. So she makes the jam. Uh, she makes the skincare products. And she deals with all the uh, business side of the thing. Um, so, like ordering, we, we our biggest expense on our farm is packaging. That's one side of the value added stuff. We spend a lot of, we have pallets and pallets and pallets of bottles and jugs and jars and labels and lids and all this stuff needs labels and it has to be compliant with a bunch of different regulations and that. And she takes care of all that stuff. So there's a. I mean, the, the big brown truck of happiness comes down our driveway at least three times a week to drop stuff off, and, uh, and that's pretty much her doing. And that is, that is a very time-consuming thing. On my farm, we didn't do value-added stuff per se, but we did a lot of packaging of our products. And, and it did take a shocking amount of time just to make sure that you had the inventory that you needed when you needed it. Right. The thing that happened with us is that when we first started doing olive oil, I got 5,000 labels printed up. And then I had to throw them away because I had failed to comply with all the labeling regulations. For example, you have to have, you have to say 500 milliliters and 16.9 fluid ounces. Both the metric and the um, English style measurements have to be on the label. And there has to be a 24-hour contact information if there was some food security issue with your product. They need to be, all this kind of stuff has to be on labels. And it's, you know, before you print up labels, it's a good idea to check that out uh, with the with the various authorities who regulate that. So value added. I mean, if you're if you spend any time at all, like in the nonprofit world in agriculture, you know you you get familiar with the grants that are out there and the various programs, and everybody's always talking about you know value added this and value added that and how how fantastic it is. Is it something that you look around and go, why aren't other farmers doing this? It is to some extent. Now, let me let me share with you a, a piece of information that I just I just find fascinating. 
Uh, the, the principal row crop in my district is tomatoes uh, for processing to go to a cannery. And 1,000-acre tomato fields, one after another. You may not be accustomed to seeing tomatoes on that kind of scale, but that's what it is here. The farmer uh, works up the soil, builds his beds, plants his crop. They're all transplants, irrigates it, fertilizes it, uh, manages the pests, harvests it, puts it on a truck, takes it to a cannery. And at the cannery, the price paid last year is 3.5 cents per pound, uh, 3.5 cents a pound for ripe tomatoes. It's just, it's just unimaginably how, how low that price is. And you go to the store and you buy a can of tomatoes and it's 99 cents. It's pretty obvious that the money being made in our food system is being made in processing and distribution. It's not being made in farming. And given that situation, if you're a farmer, why not capture some of the downstream profit? Now, so for me, with, with uh, olives, I can sell a ton of olives to a packer for $600 a ton, but if I take the oil out and sell the oil instead, I'm getting $3,000 for that ton of olives instead of $600. And, and same with the, with the channel. Like we grow apricots. Apricots, just a, just a superb fruit. It's aromatic, it's fragrant, it's luscious, it's delicious, and it's really fragile. And so we'll pack a shallow single-layer box and just getting it seven miles to the market, a bunch of that fruit's going to get bruised. And not only that, but when our apricots come in in June, everybody else's apricots come in in June. And so you go to the market and there's 12 farmers selling apricots and there's too much fruit in the market. And so it's a very competitive situation. Our price that we get for you know, organic premium apricots, fresh apricots, is $2 a pound at the market. And there's a bunch of shrink that goes with that. You could take half a pound of apricots, okay, that's $1 worth of apricots, put them in a big copper pot with some uh, sugar and some lemon juice and make apricot jam and put it in a nine-ounce jar, and it's worth $7. So you've gained two things. You've gained value, but you've also turned a really perishable product into a non-perishable product. Instead of having a 24-hour window to sell that fruit, you now have a year to sell it. That's very compelling. That's very compelling for for taking um, making value-added products out of at least at least part of your produce. And it seems to me that there's a there's a huge empty niche uh, for vegetable growers, and that is pickled vegetables, pickled green beans, pickled okra, pickled cauliflower, pickled carrots, uh, pickled cucumbers, all this stuff. I mean, there's tremendous demand. People love that stuff. There's demand for it, and I see very little of it in the farmers markets that I go to. Um, you can either do a sort of a shortcut where you're basically taking, you know, vinegar and salt and garlic or something to make your pick. Or you can do a genuine uh, fermentation with lactobacillus and you get that great you know, lactic acid taste from those, from those pickles. Now, there is a caution that goes along with that. And it's this, that the uh, health authorities consider pickled vegetables to be low acid foods, which are potentially a source of a uh, of a food poisoning or some kind of infectious problems. And so uh, they're highly regulated. And if you're going to get involved in making pickles, you're going to become involved also with the health authorities in your region. Now, a few, a few states have cottage laws. You might be able to do this on a small scale in your kitchen. Uh, but generally, if you want to you know, step up and do this in a serious way, there's a bunch of uh, issues that go along with that. On our farm, we have a dedicated food processing plant. It's a separate building. It's not big. It's 1,100 square feet. It's, in fact, it's much too small. We have our olive oil press in there, and we have our jam kitchen in there. 
and that building is licensed by the California Department of Public Health. Well, they, they have a bunch of requirements. They want to see drains in the floor. They want to see rubber baseboards. They want to see shatterproof light bulbs. They've got a, they've got a list of stuff, and th- th- their requirements are not unreasonable, but you need to check with those before you build the building so you don't build something wrong and have to redo it. Well, they charge us the fee. We pay to get our license. We pay the Department of Public Health $450 a year. And there's a $100 surcharge because it's organic. Uh, then we pay the California Department of Agriculture our organic registration. We have to pay an extra 50 bucks a year to register as a processor as well as a producer. And then our organic certification, the certifying agency requires us to have two certs, one as a producer and one as a processor. So the processor cert costs 300 and some dollars a year. So basically we're looking at something like $900 a year in permits in order to be able to operate our little facility where we do our value-added products. That's going to set a lower boundary on how much stuff you produce. Because if you're only making 450 jars of pickles, you'd be paying $2 a jar just for the permit. It doesn't make any economic sense. You're going to have to jump in with both feet and get right up, you know, get your production up right away to three, four, five thousand jars a year anyway, just to, just to um, dilute the permit cost. So as a strategy to going into that business, I would say, you know, get your recipes really figured out, get your packaging figured out, get your labeling, you know, make sure you have a supplier who you can call up and get a pallet of glass if things are going fast and you're running out of glass for packaging, all that kind of stuff. All that should be ready and in place before you actually actually jump in and start doing that. Other thing is uh, on the question of packaging. Packaging, is if you're going to do a packaged product, you're going to do a value-added product, typically it's going to be packaged. It's going to be it might be a dried something in a bag, but it still has to have a label on it. Anything processed has to have a label on it. Packaging is really important. And people respond to packaging. And you need to go out and you don't just get your high school kid to fiddle around their computer and make a label for you. You need to go hire a graphic designer. You need to have really good packaging. It's very important to selling stuff. Even though our kids are skilled at that kind of thing, we hired a graphic designer to set up our initial labels. So the soap is packaged in like a little fiber. The soap is beautiful. It's made in molds rather than being cut from a brick. So it has lovely design on it. And it's packaged in a beautiful little fiberboard recyclable box. It has a hole in it so you can look in and see the soap through the box. It's got a very nice label on it. Uh, and that bar of soap sells for $6. Of course, the soap in itself has some value, but many people are going to buy this to give it as a gift. So packaging is very important in that kind of thing. I mean, you're not only adding value by your by your labor, but you're also adding value by your artistic judgment and your knowledge. Like just, just like having a good recipe for making your jam or whatever it is. It's, that's that's part of the value add. It's not just the labor, but it's also the information. All right. With that, we're going to turn to our lightning round. First, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort B and Fort Light potting mixes. Vermont compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont compost fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm. We grew great transplants with it. I mean, really great transplants year after year after year. And at a time in the organic movement, when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon. Vermont compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food waste to foster structure and aeration in the compost, something that really carries over into the potting soil. 
One thing I have always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year, and in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com. Mike, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Yeah, well, you know, if I counted every last uh, screwdriver and wrench, I probably have more than a thousand tools, and I cherish every one of them. So, choose a favorite is not so easy. I would say, by way of a preamble, that tools that you should be using all the time are an oil can and a grease gun. Um, lubricate, lubricate. That's it's really critical. For failures of farm equipment, farm tools, farm machinery, almost always have some component of failed lubrication in them. So those, those should be tools that, that you always use. But in terms of picking a favorite tool, I'm going to say it's, a, it's an inexpensive little uh, pruning saw, tri-bevel pruning saw. This is a small saw, weighs less than a pound. It's kind of in the shape of an arc, and the handle continues the, the line of the blade. In the history of saws, there's basically two styles of saws. There's the Western saws and the Eastern saws. So the Western saws, which date from Roman times and which were in Europe and in North America, uh, there's a metal blade, got teeth on one edge, and the teeth are bent outward, so typically alternating left and right. And the idea behind that is that with the teeth being bent outward, you cut a slot or a curve, which is wider than the thickness of the blade, so that you, the blade doesn't get stuck with a lot of friction in the cut as you're going along. Um, the other style of saw, which, which originated in Japan, is called a tri-bevel saw. There's no set to the teeth. The teeth are not bent outward. Instead, each tooth has three bevels on it, which constitute the cutting edges. And the, the tri-bevel saw, which is the little saw I'm talking about here, um, it makes a beautiful cut. It makes a be it's easy to use. It cuts really fast. It makes a glass smooth cut. Now you can there's some very fancy tri-bevel saws that will cost several hundred dollars. Um, handmade saws. The blade is thinner at the top, so there's less friction. Um, I do not buy those. I buy a, a, an expensive Corona bevel saw. It costs about twenty-five dollars. The, the reason, I mean, aside from the fact that the saw is just a pleasure to use. Um, the reason I prefer that saw is it makes a very clean cut. And when you're pruning a tree, you're wounding the tree. And wound is a problem. It needs, to, it needs to heal. And if it's a ragged cut, moisture will get into it, dust will get into it, spores will get into it. You're risking some kind of infection of the tree. So the smoother the cut, the better it's going to heal. And a chainsaw is probably the worst. Even with a brand-new chain, a chainsaw is going to make a ragged cut. So I typically... Now, unless it's unless it's a branch, it's like I'm taking out a trunk that's ten inches diameter or something like that. I'll I'll use a small um, tri bevel saw. Do you have a preferred source for your tri bevel saws? Um, you know they're pretty widely available anymore. I think I just get it at my my local independent hardware store. But uh, I think even some of the big box stores may carry those. If you examine the saws closely, you'll you'll learn to recognize. It'll be pretty obvious what's a traditional western saw with the with the set teeth it only has has one sharp cutting edge and what's the tri-bevel saw that has three bevels on it incidentally it's almost impossible to sharpen a tri-bevel saw so once one's getting old just throw it away and get a new one what is diane's farming superpower well i'd say there's there's two answers to that she's uh she's certainly great at customer relationships i mean her cognitive map includes you know, eight thousand people and all their children and all their names and who they are and so she she's she's great talking to people and she's also a great jam maker. Uh, those two things are, you know, big, big pluses. Do you have a favorite crop to grow? Every crop is my favorite crop on the first day of harvest. 
So, you know, here it's here it's the second week of February. Tulips start to come in. Ah, tulips! What a great crowd! My favorite crowd. They're they're beautiful. They're elegant. They're their people love them. They're profitable. They're easy to grow. Um, tulips are great. Then we start harvesting tulips like twice a day, seven days a week. By the time I get to day 35, I'm thinking, man, I'm so sick of these tulips. I hope I never see a tulip again. And then peonies come in. Okay, now, now peonies are my favorite crop for a day. And finally, if you, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I would say <clears throat> go out and buy a really nice notebook, found book, uh, acid-free archival paper, no lines on just blank pages, nice thick paper. And buy a good fountain pen like an Amiki Falcon or something like that, and a bottle of any ink, and write stuff down. Um, I'm not talking about writing down trivial stuff like, you know, I, I spent 30 minutes hoeing the cabbage patch today, but important stuff. So let me give you a couple examples. I uh, Years ago, I planted four trees of white nectarines. There's four different varieties. And they're all good, but one of them is just outstanding. I, I would love to get more trees of that. I don't know the cultivar name, because the tags that were on those trees plastic tags they kind of disappeared over time and and uh if i had written it down i would have that another example i'm out i'm doing going deep ripping in the field and i look over my shoulder and there's water bubbling out of the ground I thought, shoot i just ran over a pipe i didn't think there was a pipe in this field well now i my I didn't my irrigation system all at once i did it was done over a period of years and i add to it and parts of it became abandoned and i thought oh, i'll remember this i'll remember there's a valve over here i'll remember where this pipe is. but the fact is i don't remember and so there should have been a map in the book that says where all these pipes go. And if I was going to go out and do some ripping, I could look in the book before I go out. Oh, yeah, there's a pipe in this field. Look out for that. Another example, um, time to change the oil in a John Deere tractor. I don't want to go to the John Deere dealer and pay $22 for an oil filter. I'm just going to go to the auto parts store and get the cheap Fram filter for $5. What's the part number on that Fram filter? Again, that's something that should have been written down in that book. I can look it up. And... The reason I suggest getting a really nice book and a really nice fountain pen is because you want to be in a certain frame of mind when you're writing this stuff down. It's kind of serious, kind of magisterial. You know, maybe your grandchildren are going to be consulting this book someday. You're not just you're not just scribbling with a crayon on a paper bag. Mike, thank you so much for being on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 166 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Madison. That's M-A-D-I-S-O-N. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can do that by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help with that. 
Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get, get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>